Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. My name is Peter Ravella, the co-host of this show. And I'm Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Well, you know, uh, Tyler, we have a really great show coming up here today that uh, we want to bring to our listeners. Uh, Our guest on the upcoming interview is Dr. Michael Asaro. He is the Marine Mammal and Sea Turtle Branch Chief at NOAA Fisheries, and he's the head of the North Atlantic Right Whale Take Reduction Team. The subject of the interview really is right whales, a very endangered population, and its impact on the Maine lobster fishery. It's a really great show. Well, guys, if you've been reading uh, Coastal News today, you know that this week uh, in a a big move. The Maine Lobstermen's Association, the primary uh, lobbying force industry uh, group in Maine, withdrew from this team. And uh, we've got the scoop here on the American Shoreline Podcast Network because we immediately reached out uh, to Patrice, who heads up that organization, and also to Noah. And we were so lucky to be able to speak with Dr. Acero on this show. As you said, Tyler, this is a two-part package on this issue. We're going to be uh, speaking with Noah, of course, first. And then Patrice McCarran, who is the president of the Maine Lobstermen's Association, has been for more than a decade, uh, will be our guest next week. And she's going to talk about what's going on in this fishery and the efforts to protect the right whale. And I'm really curious, why did the the Maine uh, Lobstermen's Association withdraw from the take team and what does that mean going forward for both the whales and the lobster fishery up in the Gulf of Maine. But before we get to it, Peter, let's have a quick word from uh, perhaps our favorite sponsor. I think it is our favorite sponsor, our longest time sponsor on Coastal News Today and the American Shoreline Podcast Network is the American Shore and Beach Preservation Association, the premier coastal management professional organization in the United States. And uh, coming up this fall, October 22nd to 25th in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, uh, which I think largely survived the recent passage of Hurricane Dorian, uh, will be the site of the ASBPA National Conference, Tyler, and we're going to be there as the exclusive podcast host of that conference and re- and reporting for our listeners from that conference. Looking forward to it. We are really looking forward to it. It's going to be a lot of fun. We will be there potting, uh, chatting it up, meeting uh, all of our listeners who will be there, too. Really looking forward to that. Uh, and uh, we hope to see you there. So go to asbpa.org slash conferences to register, uh, pay the fee, get yourself there to, to Myrtle Beach, and we look forward to seeing you there. We are so pleased to have with us on the American Shoreline podcast, Michael Asaro, the the uh, branch chief for the Marine Mammal and Sea Turtle Branch at NOAA Fisheries. Uh, welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast, uh, Dr. Asaro, and I think we can call you Michael. Yep. Sounds good. Thank you both for having me. Well, uh, Mike, it's great to have you on the show, and um, our audience knows that we're following very closely the lobster industry in Maine and uh, all of the issues that are impacting it. And one of the things that uh, we've been following this particular summer very closely is the Northern Atlantic right whale uh, population and entanglements. We've been running a number of stories on Coastal News Today, Peter, about this subject. Uh, And it's, you know, we're talking about these 
beautiful charismatic megafauna whales uh and there's just a very limited number left so it's great to have mike on the show today to talk about uh the complexity of trying to manage this population uh mike why don't why don't we start off by telling us a little bit about who you are and and what you do at NOAA working on this problem Sure. So I'm, uh, as you said, the Marine Mammal and Sea Turtle Branch Chief here at NOAA Fisheries. So our agency, NOAA Fisheries, is responsible for for the uh, implementing regulations on, on fisheries, fish habitat, the Endangered Species Act, the Marine Mammal Protection Act um, throughout the U.S. East Coast. So I'm, I'm working in the Protected Resources Program, where we oversee uh, protected and endangered uh, species all on the coast, from Atlantic salmon to North Atlantic right whales, uh, sea turtles, Atlantic sturgeon, you name it, protected and endangered species across the coast. Sound- and in my program, we focus specifically on all of the endangered whales, protected dolphins, uh, seals, and sea turtles, and porpoises, etc. So it's protecting them from a wide range of um, factors, whether it's uh, Factors impeding recovery in their environment towards human interactions, as is the case with right whales, commercial fisheries entanglement, and things like that. So right whales are especially a um, uh, focus of our attention given the threats they face and the incredibly low population level and its current downward trajectory. Well, it does sound like a very complex job. Uh, the North Atlantic right whale population, uh, as we have heard, is quite low and quite precarious. Um, tell us about that population as as uh, Noah understands it right now. What's the status of the right whale population on the Atlantic shoreline? The right whales, there are about 400 right whales remaining in the population and these are these are large filter feeding baleen whales so picture a whale the size of a school bus or larger and they're one of the largest things in the Atlantic Ocean and they survive by feeding on one of the smallest things the species of copepod called Calanus finmarchicus or copepods they um, they are filter feeding up and down the coast throughout their range and they have no known uh, threats in their natural environment, the only impediment to their recovery is human interactions, things like ship strikes and entanglements. Right whales spend the vast majority of their time in the mid-Atlantic up into the Gulf of Maine region off of the U.S. In the summertime, a portion of the population goes up into Canadian waters in the Gulf of St. Lawrence to feed, and a portion of the population in the winter also goes down to the coast of Florida and Georgia to give birth, pregnant females and also uh, some additional females or males that go along for the ride can be seen off the southeast U.S. But by and large, they're found in the Gulf of Maine and in the southern New England area and uh, increasingly so in the mid-Atlantic as well. Hmm. So what percentage of time do they spend in these uh, in, in, in the Gulf of Maine versus their uh, migratory patterns down to the southern Atlantic shoreline down to Florida? Well, it's hard to know. So we, you may see in some places a reference to a right whale migration. There was once thought that there was kind of a, a unified movement of whales throughout the Atlantic Ocean uh, corresponding with, with the months of the year. 
And the more we learn about right whales, the less confident we are in, in that type of hmm. a migratory route. What we really know now is right whales are pretty much distributed throughout their range, based primarily in the Gulf of Maine for most of the year. And dispersed in as individuals or pairs throughout their range, uh, feeding and exhibiting other social behavior with each other. But in certain times of the year, in certain places, they come together in big aggregations for uh, feeding and mating and things like that. Okay. An example of that is in the Cape Cod Bay in April into May, we can see anywhere up to 200 right whales or more inside Cape Cod Bay. So approaching hmm. you know half or more of the entire population. Hmm. In the summer, in the summer, for example, we've seen about 140 unique individuals up in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. So, you know, over a quarter of the population up feeding in the Gulf of St. Lawrence in dense aggregations. We had a, a steady aggregation south of Nantucket, for example, throughout most of this year that has gone up to 100 whales as it did last winter and down to about five whales, but a consistent feeding and social aggregation down south of the islands. So they're really throughout most of their range. They come together to aggregate from time to time in certain places, but they're pretty dispersed widely throughout their range for most of the year. Hmm. And the other thing that's unique, I, I don't know if this is unique compared to all other uh, species of whale, but this is a coastal animal. It, these are not typically found in the, out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Is that right? Are they typically a nearshore animal or what can you tell us about that? For most of their time, there are exceptions, some interesting exceptions, in fact. So most of the time, they are near shore, on the continental shelf, in, in around areas close to shore. And uh, Scott Krause, a researcher who focused uh, on right whales for a long time at the New England Aquarium and colleagues, they, they refer to the right whale as the urban whale because it spends a lot of its time in... Uh, in coastal areas where high human use is happening in a urban ocean environment, so to speak. Hmm. But however, you know, there's some historic evidence that right whales, when their population was in greater numbers, could be found up through you know, Iceland and Greenland and you know, Norway, even some some whaling remains and other kind of fossil and bone evidence can is shown that right whales have been through there as well. And there actually is a unique individual that we see from time to time swimming off the coast of Iceland. Hmm. And earlier this uh, spring, a uh, right whale was observed feeding off the coast of France. Wow. So we – Okay. There's a lot we know about this species, but there's still a lot we don't know. And it, it, uh, it continues to surprise us in the behavior it exhibits and, and where and when we find it. Well, this will not be the first time on this show that we compliment the uh, scientific uh, research that y'all do over at NOAA Fisheries and just the outstanding pursuit of understanding that is happening here. Uh, these are mysterious creatures, and we do not know a lot, and uh, it's just great to hear it. I'm curious to know, what's the lifespan of a whale? How many years do they live, and uh, what's the gestation period like for uh, a female to reproduce? So for uh, on on reproduction first, so a female will start reproducing at age 10 and she'll have a calf, She'll the gestation period is about a year long and then given how uh, energy intensive the reproduction process is, she'll probably need at least three years of recovery to replenish her uh, blubber store before she's fit enough to reproduce again. 
Wow. The trouble here is because females lose so much blubber in, in transferring that energy to their calf through lactation, she is in a pretty highly compromised state once she finishes lactation and the calf becomes independent. So what we see with right whales is the females are uh, die much more frequently and suffer more serious injuries from things like uh, sublethal entanglement. So entanglement that happen and cause injuries but don't acutely kill a whale. Uh, females have a hard time, harder time overcoming those injuries and recovering from them so that the population at this point has lost many more females than men, hmm. than males, and it now has about 40% of females overall. Well, that is, uh, if I might, that, that this was kind of an astonishing uh, fact that I uh, gathered in reviewing materials that you have produced on this population is an overall number around 400, which is incredibly low. But that the number of breeding females, what was it, 95 is the estimate? It is. So that's looking at the, the females in the population and then subtracting out the ones who haven't yet reached sexual maturity to 10 years of age. So what you're left is about 95 females who are reproductively capable, whose job it is to sustain the entire population. And that's okay. They're, they, they can do that with, and they should be able to do that with what we what we expect would be a three-year kind of recovery period between calves, the, the calving interval. Uh, but as we've seen more cr chronic stress on the whales, the calving interval has increased over time from three years, what it should be, up to about 10 years between calves for wow. females. Since, since females are, since right whales are capital breeders, they don't, and they don't have any known uh, predators in the wild, they don't really need to um, reproduce except when their body tells them they're fit to do so. So, so stressors on on whales, females in particular. What what's going to what we'd expect to happen in a stressed population is they would they would not be reproducing because their bodies aren't fit enough to do so. Hmm. So, a change in the breeding frequency from three years, which is sort of the normal natural capacity of this species to 10 years, that's a tremendous loss of reproductive potential in the population, isn't it? It is. And, then, and to get to your first question about longevity, we would there's no reason to think that a right whale couldn't live to 100 years of age. Other species like southern right whales or cousins like bowhead whales can live to 100 or more. In fact, there was a bowhead that, that uh, was determined to have died at over 200 years old. So these wow. whales should be long-lived. The problem is the longer you're alive, the greater your probability is of being killed over your lifespan, <laughs> either from an entanglement or a ship strike. So right whales, as it turns out, don't live that long because they are killed for, uh, for various reasons before they're able to reach old age. So a female, on average, lives to about 45 years, and a male, on average, lives to a little over 60 years. So far, far longer lifespan than they should. And then when you combine that with what we just talked about, the, the, the calving interval, mm -hmm. if a female reaches maturity at age 10, yep. and now her calving interval is every 10 years, and, she's, and she'll die at about 45, that only enables her to produce three, maybe four calves in her lifespan, which if we spread that across the population, it's far too few calves to sustain the 
human caused losses that we've seen. Wow. So in the the documentation that you guys have prepared, um, give us some numbers on the number of calves you've been able to verify in recent years. I understand it's quite low. Of it new is births. low in right whales. So right whales, one, there are a variety of reasons why studying right whales is really attractive to scientists. They're a really great species. They have unique patterns of white patches known as callosities on their heads. They basically have a face, so which enables us to know unique individuals. So NOAA can fly an airplane over a group of right whales, take photos, and we can analyze the photos to match the unique individuals to know exactly the individuals in the population that we're looking at. And we can track our sightings history of these individuals over time, decades even. So we can have one view of an individual, say, since 1970 that we've seen in various places at various times, and we can know the calving history because we can see when in, in photograph when she's had a calf. We can know what's happened to her calves, et cetera. Wow. And that happens in part also because right whales give birth in really shallow uh, coastal waters off of Florida and Georgia under really specific conditions. They like a certain a calmness in the ocean, they like a certain warm temperature, and they like a, a nice shallow depth. Hmm. So we, have, we can fly surveillance planes over that really specific area off of Florida and Georgia and get lots of photos over the winter when the calving season is happening, which enables us and has enabled us over the past few decades to really capture by photograph every single new calf that's been in the population. And even more, we can biopsy every calf. We can take a, a tissue sample and get genetic material for every calf, wow. which helps us in our understanding of the population. Interesting. So that we can, we can track the reproductive history. We can know exactly how many new calves are coming into the population, and we can track uh, what happens to them over the course of their lifespan. Hmm. Uh, so calving over time has gone down significantly. We should expect a population like this to produce anywhere from 25 to 30 or more calves per year. Uh, however, right whales, given the, the reproductive decline in this past season, which was we considered a good season by recent standards, was seven calves, which was up from zero the year before. And zero had never been observed before since we've been studying this species. And then only three the year before. So just far, far less calf production than we, sh we would ever expect in a, in a population this size, given its reproductive potential. Wow. That sounds even more precarious. Uh, uh, given the limited size of the population and the fact that you have genetic tracers in, in, in the system, is this population reaching a point where inbreeding is an issue? I don't know if that's applicable to whales, but are you concerned about that? So it's, it's something that has been discussed in the literature and among researchers for a while. Remember, this population was even lower um, 30 years ago, down fewer than 300 whales. So we, we have been in a lot worse situation with far fewer whales, and they don't appear to be showing any signs of um, a lack of genetic diversity. Um, however, you know, it's something that researchers have discussed in the past, but I don't think there's any evidence to think that it's something we should be worried about today. Okay, so let's talk about the threats to these animals. It's a it's a small population with a not a highly reproductive uh, uh, capacity. It seems. Uh, I understand from the the data that we reviewed that since January of 2017, uh, up through August of this year, so to the present day, 
you've accounted for 28 whales that have uh, died. I think, is that of all, any cause, natural or, or artificial? Tell us about the, di- the, the population death rate these days. So those are the number of observed dead whales, and that is an important caveat. So those, those 28 deaths are in both U.S. waters and Canadian waters over the past uh, three years or so. And those are the deaths that we've seen. Uh, given how difficult it is to observe uh, a whale carcass out in the ocean, it, we miss many of them. So we don't know the cause of death for every whale, even the ones we see. And we, we don't even see a lot of the dead whales. We, we have, we're certain about that because we have a highly precise estimate of the population. We know how many whales are in the population overall. And we see every new entrant. We see every calf that's born into the population. So because we know those two things, we have a pretty good sense of how many must have died in order to make those numbers work. And as it turns out, we miss about 40% of the whales that die. Hmm. So that 28 number, that's the ones that we have seen. So if if we have seen that many over the past few years, which is alarming in and of itself, add in the ones that we probably missed over the same period, and you get a sense of how many whales have died over the past few years. I mean, our, five years ago, we were, we were talking in terms of approaching 500 whales. So now we're to the, at the point where we are at 400 or perhaps fewer. So it's a, it's a decline, and it's been a, a sharp decline over the past decade or so. Okay. And when you talk about the, the 40% that you think is unaccounted for, is it, and, and I would assume that these things can die in places where they sink or they are simply not observed, is, is that basically what accounts for the, uh, the underreporting of deaths? Is this simply that you just don't know where they are? It is. So we, we, when we see a dead whale, we can, we, can try, we can analyze it and try to get from it whatever information we can. We can either tow it to shore, if that's possible, cut it open, and try to determine a cause of death, if, if that's possible. Um, or, um, you know, there are many that just go undetected. A, a big category that, that doesn't get enough attention as the ones that we just see dead are what we call a serious injury. So it's basically, it's a whale that's suffering from an injury that we think is life-threatening. It's basically a dead whale swimming. And there are a lot of these whales each year. So what ends up happening is our NOAA plane um, will sometimes see a dead whale, but most of the time doesn't. If it does, that's a rare thing, um, even though it's becoming more frequent. But more often than not, we'll see a whale that's swimming and behaving with other whales, but it is showing traits and exhibiting signs of a serious injury that uh, lead us to believe that we are unlikely to ever see this whale again. And that happens more, more and more over time. The whale will see, we'll take a photograph, it'll be skinny, its skin will be gray. When right whales are suffering from severe injuries approaching death, their white patches on their heads suddenly get covered in orange, these orange cyanids. So it's, uh, they have some pretty distinct signs when a whale is, uh, won't last much longer. So okay. we see these traits in a photograph, and then as it turns out, we just never see that whale again. Okay. So we just presume it's died. That makes sense. Is And really, regardless of the specific detail of that, um, is there any question that that at a level of 400 whales, this is just a very low number? You know, I would think that most people, if I told around the country, said there's only 400 of this whale, would be alarmed at that number. Is 
is this what was the vibrant level of this population historically? How does that compare to what? Uh, if, do you have any idea of what uh, what the healthy population size was for this creature? It's really hard to know. There's been some genetic work by a researcher named Tim Frazier who's been trying, who's tried over time to to get at that question of how many should there be in the population. Right. Uh, you know, there's been anywhere from 10,000 or, or, or more. It's hard to know. They were depleted initially by commercial whaling. That's what brought the numbers down to as low as they were. And so it's hard really to know. There's mm-hmm. been some, some review of whaling records to try to get a sense of how many there may have been, but, it, but it's a, a difficult to know. One thing is for sure that it's far more than 400. So when we try to think about what does recovery look like, it's, it, it's probably something that shouldn't even be a topic of conversation anywhere in our lifetimes, given the amount of work that we need to do on this population to get it anywhere close to being uh, you know, a topic of a, a recovery conversation. But we can look at species like the southern right whale, which is a close cousin to the North Atlantic right whale, and either our populations off of South America and Africa and Australia. And those right whales were brought down in commercial whaling to numbers as low as our right whale. And the difference is over the 70 years or so that there's been no more whaling on these species, southern right whales don't have really any threats from fisheries entanglement or ship strike, just given where, they're, where they occur and the activities that, that uh, don't occur around them. And they've grown so much over the past uh, century almost in population size compared to our right whale. They're at the point that southern right whale populations are producing uh, calves, annual cohorts of calves that exceed the entire population size of North Atlantic right whales. So, so, so recovery is possible, and we can the speed the population can add a lot to its numbers in a relatively short period of time. The, the main thing that we need to do is find ways to eliminate these sources of human caused mortality to let the recovery happen. Now let's let's talk about that because uh, obviously um, this is the the crux of the work that you're doing is trying to figure out how we can uh, come to some sort of a balance here, keep this species alive and uh, build the numbers up and while at the same time uh, find a way to allow uh, American fishermen, and I suppose Canadian fishermen too, to, to earn a living and continue to do what they do. Uh, and I guess shippers as well, talking about uh, ship strikes. So uh, let's, let's start with uh, entanglements and um, help our audience understand uh, what is happening here when we use that word entanglement? What is what is going on um, with these uh, ropes and t- crab pots? Help us help us understand that. Sure. So so the major cause of entanglement in in right whales is with fixed gear fisheries. So these are fisheries that have either a trap or a net anchored to the ocean floor, and at the end of a string of either you know, something like a lobster trap or, or, or gill nets, at either end, there is a vertical line that attaches the net or trap back up to the surface of the ocean with a buoy on it. So the fisherman can come back and retrieve his or her gear, knows where it's placed, et cetera. So it's that line. It's that line that connects either the net or the trap back up to the surface on either end of that string that poses the entanglement risk for the whale. 
So what ends up happening more often than not is a whale will swim through and the line will get snagged on either the whale's flipper, for example, or the whale will be uh, feeding with its mouth open and the whale, the line will enter its mouth and the whale, for example, a pretty common um, entanglement we see is a whale is swimming through with its mouth open, it, uh, a line enters its mouth, the whale closes its mouth when it feels the line, and then as a sort of a evasive instinct, the whale begins to roll. So it starts to roll to avoid the threat or whatever it perceives in its mouth. And the roll, the rolling action ends up wrapping the line around its body, and then it'll it'll fan out its flippers, and then the line will get hung up under there. So we end up seeing these really complex entanglements with right whales. And because the right whales are so strong, again, they're the size of a school bus, they aren't going to be anchored in place. The gear that they're entangled in won't stop them. So what they'll do is start to swim away with all of the gear attached. Occasionally it'll break because right whales are really strong, so they can break through lines. But many times you have a line that's wrapped around the whale, and it'll swim away carrying with behind it either a, you know, a crab pot or a lobster trap, uh, whatever the fishery might be. So there are, in, in rare occasions, if, we, if we're able to respond and if we see it in time, we have partners, uh, uh, for example, at the Provincetown Center for Coastal Studies on Cape Cod of trained experts who will get in a inflatable and ride up alongside the whale and, and will cut lines away to try to save the whale's life. So there are instances when, and that's been successful, but, uh, but it's, it's a really difficult and dangerous uh, last resort in that case. So more often than not, the whale will, will swim with the entanglement. It'll impede its ability to, to feed, and the drag and pull from the gear behind it will, will weaken the whale, and will, uh, at some point the whale will just uh, either develop a, a chronic injury as a result of the entanglement, um, uh, either the, the, the lines causing an infection on its skin or something, impeding uh, uh, feeding, leading to starvation or, or, or exhaustion, things like that. And that's what will ultimately kill the whale. This show is also brought to you by TI Coastal Services, a great coastal engineering firm from Wilmington, North Carolina, and the sponsor of ASPN's coverage of the Florida Shorn Beach Preservation Association meeting coming up in Hutchison Island, Florida. September 18th through the 20th. Thank you to TI Coastal Services for supporting that coverage and in this show today. So when you have these uh, recovery teams go out, uh, if you if you are able to observe an entangled whale and you send out the guys in the Zodiac to uh, try to extricate it from the, the line, um, do you have a count? How frequently does that happen? Or is there a what can you tell us about how often that has to be done? So first, we do it for, for right whales, humpback whales, and, and even minke whales, large whale species. And we do it in cases when we think that the entanglement is life, it, it will jeopardize the whale's life. So it's, if we don't intervene, then the whale will die. So right whales are good at breaking out of gear. They do do it. We, we see right whales that are entangled one day, and then we see them weeks or months later, and they're gear-free even if they're a little banged up, but, but they can shed the gear. They're good at that. So we, if we think there's a possibility that'll happen, then we let, that, we let them do that. But if we think that the entanglement is so complex that it's life-threatening and there is an opportunity to respond, we will. 
more often than not, it's with humpback whales because they spend more time around Cape Cod, so they're more likely to be seen entangled. Whale watch boats everywhere are looking at humpback whales off the coast of Massachusetts, so they're, they're more likely to be in, in our view than right whales are. And there are just a lot more of them. Since there are so few right whales, and since we see the entanglements, we're able to observe them so rarely, the opportunity doesn't come up as often. But we, there, was a, there was a disentanglement made uh, just a few weeks ago uh, this summer off the coast of uh, Cape Cod. So it was a disentanglement attempt that was first made in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. The Canadian team was unable to, to make any uh, successful cuts, but they were able to attach a satellite telemetry buoy to the gear. So we could keep track of where the whale was going. Hmm. And as it turned out, the whale left the Gulf of St. Lawrence and came straight to Cape Cod, where the U.S. team is based, uh, luckily enough. And, and the, the, the Provincetown um, Center for Coastal Studies team was able to make uh, a few key cuts that didn't disentangle the whale entirely. But we feel confident that if the whale does survive, because it, it was pretty badly injured, if it, if it does overcome its injuries, there's a chance that it may be able to break free, free of the gear. But it's a, it's, it's a really complex and dangerous process that we, we leave as a last resort. So, Mike, do I, do, am I correct to understand that this whale dragged that gear or remain entangled and still managed to, to move from the Gulf of St. Lawrence in Canada down to Cape Cod? Is that right? That's correct. And the, and the entanglement on this particular whale was such that it's, it's, the wrap was around its head and it was, the whale was unable to open its mouth. So it, it couldn't feed while that wrap was made around its mouth. We've seen just in the past few years, we, we uh, disentangled and recovered a snow crab uh, trap from Canada. Uh, we cut it off a whale um, off the coast of Georgia. So we know, we know that there's no distance that whale, wow. whales can't drag and, you know, any amount of gear or line that it's entangled to. So let's talk a little bit about where these entanglement threats originate. I think you mentioned three uh, fisheries here. The gillnet fishery, these are anchored fixed gear uh, fisheries, snow crab, and lobster. Can you tell us a little bit about where those risks are regionally? What... And, and just educate us a little bit about the source of this risk. Sure. So as I said, there any any fixed gear fishery, so any fishery that has something anchored to the ocean floor with a buoy up at the surface with a vertical line in between poses an entanglement risk. And there really isn't any difference between what the buoy is attached to at the bottom. It doesn't make much of a difference in terms of entanglement risk. Line in any line is a threat to a whale. So, you know, with that in mind, we look at what, what is the distribution of lines uh, throughout the right whale's range that put, could potentially pose the most risk. So up in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, where a portion of the population, as I said, about maybe about 150-ish of the, of the 400 go to feed each summer, they happen to be we, or happen to have been feeding over the past three seasons in an area, in a precise location, in, in a dense aggregation on the Gulf of St. Lawrence, in an area that's heavily fished for snow crab. So we know there's a really high level of co-occurrence there in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. And those, and that gear, they fish them on singles. So it's one buoy, one line, one trap. Uh, they aren't fished in a string. So in those, in those fisheries, they have, they have one buoy per, and one line per trap, and lots of traps. So lots of buoys, lots of lines. 
Right. The the traps are big, and when they're full of snow crab, they can be over a thousand pounds in weight. So to be able to haul that up, to have the ability to haul that back onto your boat, use really heavy gauge lines, half an inch, five eighths of an inch, uh, or more. So it's mm-hmm. uh, all of these characteristics make the entanglement risk for right whales really high. Given the number of lines and the co-occurrence, there's a high probability of an entanglement. And then once that happens, because the lines are so strong, it's really difficult for a whale to break out of that. Okay. Let me, so can, can, you put a, can you put a number uh, or a range of numbers of what a typical snow crab uh, trap season would be? Uh, how, many, how many lines, how many traps roughly um, are, are in that area that you referred to, this aggregation area up in the Gulf of St. Lawrence? I don't, I don't know specifically with the Canadian snow crabs. So we've looked at and tried to estimate just vertical lines, total numbers of vertical lines throughout the right whale's range. Okay. From the U.S. East Coast up to the, you know, Atlantic Canada. And our best guess is it's probably over a million vertical lines in the ocean. Wow. In and around where right whales live. It's probably wow. anywhere from around 500,000 or more, 600,000 in the U.S. waters, and probably something similar in Canada. Throughout the waters off of Nova Scotia on the Scotian Shelf, where there's lobster being caught into the Gulf of St. Lawrence, where there's also lobster and snow crab and other crab species being caught there. Probably about a million lines or more throughout right whales' range. Hmm. And I, I just have to ask a question. I mean, you know, and this might be, this might be a silly question, Mike, but I just have to ask it. You know, I perceive whales as being uh, an intelligent species, and I don't know. Is there any, is there any like behavioral um, observation to suggest that the whales have are aware that there's a risk in these lines? Can they detect them? Can they see them? And is there any behavioral avoidance that you're seeing with the whales in these high-risk areas? There isn't. And if you think about it, there, we probably shouldn't expect there to be one, despite how intelligent large whales are. You know, if you, if you think about it, given their size and how there are no natural predators, right whales uh, are designed by evolution to not um, not experience anything like risk or perception of danger around them. They, there is none in the natural environment, and they've been built by evolution to not be aware necessarily. So mm-hmm. what, what ends up happening is they spend a lot of time at the surface, and that's a, of concern when mitigating ship strikes, and they spend a lot of time feeding obliviously with their mouths open, which is, uh, which is an entanglement risk. So we, I mean, there's been some literature looking at uh, I mean, right whales' eyeballs to think that maybe if a line were, were red, it, it, it would be more visible to a whale, which may lead to avoidance. But there's really no evidence to, to see to show that right whales have any, uh, you know, willingness to, to avoid these um, these obstacles. You know, we we see it in in, in on the on the flip side when a female right whale has a calf down off the coast of Florida and Georgia, then there is a natural risk. You know, uh, uh, right whale calves are a lot smaller and they can be subject to shark predation. So when, when adult females have a calf down off the coast of Florida, 
whereas right whales usually make a lot of noise. They interact with each other through vocalizations, loud and distinct calls. They, they vocalize frequently with each other and, and all the time, except when they have a calf. When moms have a calf, they are very, very, very quiet. So, and that makes sense because right whale, while the adults don't have any predators and shouldn't sense any risks, when a mom's with calf, that's a different story. So she needs to be really, really quiet and keep that calf really close while it's small. Wow. So from a, from a biological standpoint, there are times which make sense evolutionarily and biologically about when right whales should exhibit risk and avoidance, you know, acknowledgement, but it doesn't really apply to human interactions because that's just not a natural threat to right whales. Okay. You know, what's interesting about the entanglement thing, it, it comes back to that issue of the sublethal effects that these lines have, the stress they create on the breeding female population. Uh, the fact that they get entangled and have this extra stress and carry maybe a trap that weighs a thousand pounds and dragging it around uh, does not allow them to recover to the level of reproductive health. So it, this entanglement issue, it sounds like, is not simply a mortality question, but it has a direct impact on the reproductive success of the population. Is that my, my understanding? That's correct. Yeah. That, that's correct. And it's really, it's a chronic problem. So if we, the New England Aquarium has been doing a couple of different really unique studies uh, of this population over many decades. Uh, one is they look at the, the acquisition of new scars on individuals. So when, when right whales become entangled, their black skin gets scarred really easily. So as it turns out, when we observe right whales by surveys and photographs, we can compare new photos with old photos to see when right whales and how frequently the, they are accumulating new scars from encountering lines, even if the entanglements aren't either long-term or lethal. And what that showed is the, the rate of scarring on right whales has increased steadily every single time they update the study over the past 30 plus years to the point now where 85% of the entire population has at least one entanglement scar. Wow. And then the majority have many more than one. And by comparing it over time, they've been able to conclude that on any given year, about 25% of the population gets a new scar. Wow. So out of the 400 wells left, we see about 100 new scars each year. So it gives you a sense of just how chronic the problem is on a, on a year-to-year basis, but also over the lifespan of a, of a right whale. That's... And the, the aquarium also tracks like, the, the health of the population. So there are certain signs that you can look at, uh, you know, the color of the skin, whether or not, you know, bones are protruding, presence of orange cyamins in the head that can give you an indication of the health of the whale. And the New England Aquarium assigns a, a health score to each individual and you can look at health scores across the population. You can look at health scores with only the males, the, the juveniles, the, the females, and you can cut it a bunch of different ways. And what the research showed is that the, the segment of the population that has the best health scores are the adult males. Hmm. And the segment of the population that has the worst health score are the females that are actively trying to go through um, uh, reproduction. And, you know, entanglement reduces your health score. You know, entanglement and reproduction reduces it even further. So it's getting at this link between how uh, reduced fitness they get, the females get naturally when they're trying to undergo natural reproduction, which is really made a lot worse with all of the chronic entanglements. And it gives you a better sense of just how much 
the chronic entanglements are impeding their ability to reproduce and recover. That's uh, that's amazing. And what an, what incredible analysis they're able to do here. I guess this is the the unfortunate advantage of having such a small population is that you can individually monitor all of them. Um, so, Mike, I, I want to we want to get into the take reduction team and, and exactly what triggered it. But uh, there's another factor here that we got to talk about, which is ship strikes. Um, tell us a little bit about you mentioned that these they like to hang out on the surface. They're kind of impervious to risk. Uh, I'm, and they're urban whales, so I'm sure they're in uh, some of our, our shipping ways. Uh, but tell us about ship strikes and, and how that, that's affecting the population. It is for all those reasons that you just mentioned that right whales are especially susceptible to, to ship strikes. And they spend most of their, their lifetime on the, on the Atlantic coast in, in among the, some of the busiest uh, seaways um, in the world. So, so we've seen... So right, ship strikes continue, have been and continue to be a pretty um, significant source of mortality. A couple of differences here with something like entanglements is when a right whale gets hit by a ship, it is not a chronic injury. It dies nearly instantaneously. Hmm. Most of the time from blunt force trauma, occasionally a right whale will be struck by a propeller uh, at the stern. But more often than not, it's at the bow of the ship on being struck by the – in suffering some, some blunt force trauma that kills a whale – nearly um, instantly. So there isn't this kind of chronic um, component of it mm -hmm. that is impeding something like reproduction. But it, it still and it has been a source of mortality. For, for ship strikes, we are, we are fortunate to have a, a good mitigation measure at hand. So as it turns out, by requiring the big ships to slow down to a speed of 10 knot, knots or less, at certain times of the year when right whales are present, it is highly effective at reducing the probability of, a, of an entanglement. So in 2008, no or a strike, published, I'm sorry. Of, of, of a strike. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. So in 2008, no fisheries published uh, regulations that required a vessel 65 feet in length or greater to slow down to 10 knots or less at a, a variety of ports from Florida uh, all the, up to, to uh, New England. So certain times of the year when right whales are present uh, in these areas and at these ports must slow down to 10 knots or less. And in the decades since those rules have been in place, we've seen a significant reduction in ship strike mortality in U.S. waters. To the point that we can conclude that those regulations are really highly effective, and as long as compliance stays high, that we, we have a good tool at hand to, to prevent those ship strikes. That's great. So that's uh, that is uh, good news and uh, an indication of some effectiveness. Has the industry been relatively cooperative on on the regulations regarding ship speed? Has that been something they've been willing to do? So no, I mean, from a, from the perspective of, of the shipping industry, nobody nobody wants to 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 cause a lethal strike. So vessel so shipping companies uh, are supportive of the effort to protect these endangered whales. So that you know, maritime commerce can happen in in and around their habitat, with no with no adverse effect. Uh, you know, however, re requiring a slowdown does cause a, an increase in, in things like transit time. You know, there is some fuel savings with slowing a vessel down, but however, it does add more time to the trip. So that has been right. you know a concern from the from the industry perspective. But we you know, we have a good partnership with with some of the major. A global shipping companies that we we monitor the speeds of their vessels uh, using AIS 
and on a monthly basis, we actually kind of informally share with them reports of our observations of the speed of their vessels Fantastic. as a kind of pro- proactive step, so the so the corporations can be in touch with their captains to to monitor their compliance with the regulations. You're you're in the traffic control business. <laughs> so, but I think it, it indicates the finding the right solution that is workable and compatible with the economic interest affected and is effective for the species. Boy, that's the magic bullet you're trying to find. Uh, when you're looking at the threats of these animals uh, and the ship strikes, obviously a decreasing concern or a low level concern, what percentage of the artificial mortality in this population do you attribute to entanglement? What's the relative uh, contribution of the versus a strike? Yeah. The strike versus so, entanglement. So the, the, the strikes are now strikes in U.S. waters are now approaching zero. So it's not, so it's many orders of magnitude higher for for entanglement. It, it really it, there has been a near elimination of entanglement of ship strike mortality in U.S. waters. Okay. So, so we definitely have an area to work. We have we need to improve on this uh, entanglement issue. It seems to save the and species. There, and we've seen ship strikes in Canadian waters too. So the Canadians have just recently introduced similar regulations requiring vessels to slow down over the past uh, few seasons, but but we still have seen uh, ship strike mortalities in Canadian waters. So if you're looking at the population as a whole, um, there is still a ship strike risk. And I would say there is still a risk in in U.S. waters as well. So it's not that we should never expect to ever see a ship strike again. But but the, the probability of one has been significantly reduced in U.S. waters as a result of the slowdown rule. Okay, so let's so we're going to turn our attention now to the take reduction team. You're focusing on entanglement. I think the case is pretty clear. That is the artificial risk to the population. It affects reproductive success. Um, and as I understand it, Mike, in looking through the materials, uh, these take reduction teams are formed. Tell us how they're formed. What triggers it? What are you trying to do? Introduce our audience to what a take reduction team is, and this one particularly. Sure. So, so in 1994, the Marine Mammal Protection Act was amended that to create this system of take reduction teams. And what it means is, is the Marine Mammal Protection Act says that NOAA fisheries, if the if the levels of fisheries mortality on any on a species, any species, is above legal limits, and I'll get into that more in a minute is above legal limits, then NOAA Fisheries needs to pull together a team of stakeholders of all um, interests uh, involved in this issue, from the fisheries to the whale species, the science, you name it. Bring as many different people together as needed to get a good uh, representation of everyone involved and meet, get recommendations from that group and implement regulations on the fisheries to reduce the mortality to below legal limits. So that that legal limit is what we call the potential biological removal. So it's basically the number of individuals, number number of marine mammals that can be removed from the population, uh, incidentally through through completely legal um, commercial fishing operations without impeding its sustainability. So for a, a species like a harbor porpoise, for example, Harbor porpoises get caught in gill nets. They're not endangered, but they're protected under the Marine Mammal Protection Act. And we have a take reduction team that recommends measures for gill nets to prevent harbor porpoises from being entangled. And because there are 90,000 harbor porpoises, 
the potential biological removal is about 700 porpoises a year. So if we get across all of their range, the number of bicot harbor porpoises down to below that 700 level and, and get it as low as we can, but below that level, then we're good to go. We're not impeding the sustainability of the species. Things are a lot different with right whales. We have the Atlantic Large Whale Take Reduction Team that has been in place and been convened periodically since 1996. Been recommending regulations the entire time, and we've been implementing regulations the entire time. Because the, the population is so low now, there are 400 whales, and has been lower even historically, the potential biological removal for this species is 0.9 right whales per year, averaged over a five-year period. So our the allowable take, without impeding the sustainability, is less than one whale per year. Wow. So the, the margin here is so incredibly small that it has, it has been an elusive goal for us to reach. So despite 20 years of great work, close collaboration with the fisheries, uh, lots of new ideas, and new measures and gear modifications put in place, things like uh, weak links to allow uh, lines to break if an entanglement happens at the surface, uh, things like closure areas, like closing all of Cape Cod Bay when the whales come in each spring, things like requiring sinking ground lines, so the lines between connecting your traps on the ocean floor aren't floating up and posing an entanglement risk. Despite all these great innovations and collaborative work by this team, we are still not reaching our federal mandate. This show is also brought to you by the DHI Group. DHI are the first people you should call when you have a tough challenge to solve in a water environment, be it a river, a reservoir, an ocean, a coastline, or within a city or a factory. Their knowledge of water environments is second to none. It represents 50 years of dedicated research and real-life experiences from more than 140 countries. They strive to make their knowledge globally accessible to clients and partners by channeling it through local teams and unique software. You should check them out. We've got advertisements on coastalnewstoday.com. We've been profiling them in the Daily Blast email. But go to dhigroup.com to learn more. So it, just for the benefit of the audience, let me, let me add a little bit of explanation to this incidental take idea. Uh, when I used to work in consulting on, on uh, shoreline restoration and dredging, they, there were uh, limits on the number of Kemp Ridley turtles in the Gulf of Mexico that could be killed every year through different economic activities. I think the number was nine. And so what you're saying is, legally speaking, there is a permissible level of uh, mortality that the law allows, but that mortality level is set at a level that uh, if we don't exceed this incidental take number, the population is going to be okay. And it is amazing here that the the allowed take is less than one per year, and I guess that's a five-year average, right? So. Boy, if you've had 28 known deaths since January 2017, in spite of all of the work that the take reduction team has been doing since 1996, and I have looked through the measures you've adopted working closely with the fishing industry and others, uh, there's been a lot of energy put into this. There's been significant uh, measures adopted over the years. 
but it doesn't seem to be getting the job done. Why do you why do you think what's missing in the approach that you've been able to take up till now? Why why hasn't the the system that you guys have built in the last really 20 years uh, effectively responded to this problem? So it's been because it's a because it's such a complex problem and because the nature of entanglements is is complex and not really easily understood. And because there's so much we still don't know about specifically where, when, and how the entanglements happen has made it difficult. So initially in the mid to late 90s, the initial regulations uh, required, as I said, the weak link. So a plastic ring that breaks at a certain strength to be uh, put on the, on the buoy in the, in the vertical line to, to break open. And we know those work, but however, it only works when the entanglement happens right at that point. But, and we know entanglements happen elsewhere. And we knew that entanglements also happened on the ground line. So that's why the, the, the sinking ground line mandate right. came into play in mm-hmm. 2007. Right. So there's been these steps along the way. The closure was put in Cape Cod Bay in the early 2000s. In 2014, we put in a, what we call a trawling up requirement to reduce the number of vertical lines overall. We set mandates on your minimum number of traps per trawl on your fixed gear fisheries. Okay. So basically saying add more traps to your trawl to cut down on the number of lines you have overall. So we, throughout this 20-year period, it has been a, a steady progression of looking at different par- parts of the gear, looking at different uh, entanglement risks, and taking action you know, based on the best technologies we had and the best scientific advice and right. the advice of the fishermen who were at the table. So right. it's, it's been a really steady process, but you, we haven't seen the response from, uh, from the population. But however, for example, you know, before 2009, when sinking ground line was put in place, we used to recover ground lines and from entanglement. We used to see them entangled on the whales. After those rules went into place, we don't see them anymore. So it's not to say that the rules that have been right. put in place haven't worked. We just haven't seen – we haven't moved the needle enough as much as the, well, the federal law requires us or as much as is needed to keep the species sustainable. Mike, one of the things that we've, we've been covering is um, the kind of boom in the lobster fishery in the Gulf of Maine. And um, I don't have an answer for that. I know that the, the harvest has been, I believe, record uh, numbers uh, – at least the past couple of years. And, you know, I'm just curious to know, has the number of lines been increasing in these critical areas? And could that, is that offsetting maybe some of the gains that have been made with um, some of these other adoptions that have been made over time, like with the sinking ground lines, uh, et cetera? I, I mean, it's, it's possible. I don't believe so. Based on the data we have on vertical lines, it doesn't appear to have been a, a sharp increase in lines over time. You know, it, it, as, as for example, if, if in your example, if lobster um, gear increases, you know, over the past decade too, there's been a pretty significant decrease in in gill netting in the Gulf of Maine um, uh, for you know fisheries management reasons and, and other factors. So it's, it's so it's probably more complex than that with yeah. some lines coming in from some fisheries and lines being reduced in other fisheries over time. Hmm. Okay, because looking at the – you provided to us a, a population trend uh, graph that starts back in 1999 and it goes through 2018. 
there was an increasing population trend from 1999 all the way to 2010. You guys were making great progress. The population was rising from around 300 to over 450. And then you kind of peaked there around 2010, it looks like. And this slow decline in the population since then. Um, it, you know, I'm not, I, I guess the, the point here is the take reduction team has been working hard for 20 years, made a lot of progress, implemented a lot of steps cooperatively with the fisheries, with the states and the stakeholders that are involved in the team. Um, it must be frustrating, Mike, for you and your team and for all of the people involved to see this downturn. Um, how has the team responded to this this development? Because obviously people are invested in this coming out. It's disconcerting, out, right? yeah. It's got to be sure. upsetting. I mean, how has the how has the team reacted to the to the declining population after all of this work? It is. It is very difficult, and it and it, it it makes the it makes an already difficult challenge um, uh, much more difficult. You know, we it, it's hard for us to to communicate this without. You know, and if I were a fisherman, I would respond the same way. I would say, "Well, you're, it appears as though you all are moving the goalpost." You know, we we we've done so much, and and we had good news before. Right. You know, what what happened now? Why why is it suddenly not enough? You know, in those times when the population was growing, we had about two percent population growth during that period you mentioned in the '90s and into the 2000s. You know, we we had really cautious optimism there because despite the growth, which was good, we still had high levels of, of human-caused mortality. We still had, back then, before the speed rule, we had U.S. ship strikes and we had U.S. entanglement mortalities. So despite we had, we were observing dead whales at the same levels now or perhaps higher, and we still had that growth. So yeah. it was, you know, there's a reason why the Marine Mammal Protection Act focuses on on the deaths. It's basically reduced the deaths. Our mandate isn't to grow the population. So it's easy to look at that growth and and be um, tempted to, to think that things are, are okay, even, even though during that same period we still had a lot of human-caused mortality that exceeded legal limits. Right. And it, it, having never been able to reach the allowed potential biological removal, I love that phrase, such a great phrase, uh, government phrase, uh, uh, which is less than 1.9, you said, allowed per year. We're in excess of that. But you're, like you're saying, I think that's an important thing to understand about the take reduction team. The focus is on the mortality as opposed to the overall population. But um, what what's the reason we wanted to talk to you, Mike, uh, was because of the recent decision by the Maine Lobstermen's Association to withdraw from the take reduction team. And I understand they were a a, a cooperative uh, and instrumental party in that uh, process for many years. Can you tell us about their history with the take reduction team? And what do you think about the decision for them to 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 withdraw? Sure. So, so not only have they been a, a cooperative and instrumental party at the take reduction team, they still are. So they can. Um, that's that's perfectly within in their right to to disagree with with the recommendations that move forward. Um, but that's okay. And you know, if I were in if I were a Maine lobsterman, I, I I would. I mean, even my position, I, I sympathize fully with their with the issues they raise, and uh, I understand fully why they they no longer feel 
like they can they can uh, move forward with the agreement. You know, the way the way the Marine Mammal Protection Act works is that the the take reduction team is an advisory body to NOAA Fisheries. It makes recommendations, and we we are consensus based. So we we rarely do we we don't tally votes, and we don't keep a voting history on of members and who voted for what and who is opposed to what. That's not really how our process works. We we get together, we and we and we work it out in in groups, smaller breakout groups. We come back and discuss it all together, and we tr- and during our meetings we work throughout the week to try to build build consensus as best we can. That that process over time has been been really difficult. We rarely ever have reached consensus, and that's because the the, the issue is is just so complex. Right. So so that's okay. So so the fact that we and in fact, you know, the main main folks not um, not moving forward with the agreement that was reached at our meeting in April uh, still doesn't change anything with respect to whether we uh, reached consensus or not. We we had a member who, who who did not vote in favor of the of the agreement back at the meeting in April. Right. So it doesn't doesn't change the outlook. Unanimous vote is much. It's and, not unanimous. And at the end of the day, at the end of the day, the 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 requirement under the law is that NOAA Fisheries put measures in place to protect the whales. Got it. It's not it's not the TRT that's held responsible for for implementing these measures. We we look for consensus, we look for their advice, we we stick to their recommendations as best we can, but the the burden is on the uh, NOAA fisheries to, to to put the measures forward. Yeah, that makes sense. It it's a, it really is the level of engagement that the Marine Mammal Protection Act contemplates with these take reduction teams is 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 one of the, we should all be proud. That's the way our government works. You bring everybody to the table, you put things in front of the group, you work through the hard trade-offs that are involved. And ultimately, though, as you say, the agency's legal responsibility is to act and this group is a way to shape those actions. Um what I'm curious about, it, it what is, and, I, and I'll say, and I'll say, I'm I'm really proud of the process. I've been part yeah. of it for over a decade. I and for for other species besides large whales, and I've seen it in action in, in many different ways. It's something that I think is is one of the best parts of the way we do business at NOAA, and it it speaks to the the transparency of the process and the level to which we care about and and solicit industry input. Nobody knows, no one knows more about how to protect right whales from entanglements than the fishermen do. So the fact that we have them in a front row seat in the process is is one of the best parts about about what we do here. Right, and you know what struck me, and I and I may not be feel free to correct me here, but in reading about the action that the Maine Lobstermen's Association recently took, it seemed to me that in the April meeting that they were willing to go forward with a 50% reduction in vertical lines, um, which is, it really seems to me to be the crux of the management, the new uh, take reduction measure out there. Is that correct that they were, they were sort of right on the edge of saying yes to that? And what change do you think? Um, I, I, it's hard to know. I, it's hard to know. So we, the only thing we put forward at that April meeting is from the, from the agency's perspective it was we need, we need measures to reduce the risk of entanglement mortality to these whales by at least 60% in order to, to get us below our legal limits, to get right. us below that potential biological remote, 60% across the board. 
so because we recognize that different fisheries, different states, different jurisdictions, inshore, offshore, you know, Maine, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, yep. all of these different places uh, uh, practice and manage lobster fishing differently. We said all we care about is the risk reduction. We produced an analytical tool to enable the team members to run scenarios and, and, and uh, estimate what level of risk reduction you'll get based on what measures you try. Right. And we said for the week, come up with packages, come up with measures that you can live with based on what you know about your local fishery in your state, in your jurisdiction, and bring that back to us, and that'll be part of the package. Got it. So that's why we put the states in charge yep. in particular because they know their fishery best, and more importantly, they know what measures their own industry can tolerate and accommodate um, better than anyone else. Right, so, so a little we didn't local want to be, we, we didn't want to be forcing anything. All we care about is reducing risk of entanglement. So that's why the Maine caucus, for example, including industry and their state government, got together and produced this package that of their way of hitting the 60% risk reduction. Okay. That included a 50% line removal, and then of the lines that remain, converting a portion of that line to a lower breaking strength so that if an entanglement occurs, that the whale can break out more easily. So that sounds was what, that was the good. package they came up with. Okay, sounds good, right? Did it hit your target? Did it meet your goal of a at least 60% reduction in entanglement mortality? Did you find that the state measures that they proposed were workable for you legally? They were. They were. So that was, we. I mean, we consider that a, a framework agreement. So it's hard. You can say we'll remove 50% of your vertical lines, but we there's still a lot to be right. explained on how specifically you'll do it. Okay. So that so we, we had that agreement in principle, and the TRT members voted. Those who voted in favor accepted that. Okay. But there were still questions, and not just for, for Maine's proposal, for all of the proposals that were agreed to, right. about what the spe- how specifically they'll look in implementation. And that's what all of the TRT members have, have gone back and been working on ever since April at this point. I see. Now, in, in let's, let's help the audience understand where we are in the process here to actually uh, have new rules that would go into effect. As I understand it in August, and uh, you guys had the scoping meeting for the draft environmental impact statement, uh, in that all of these measures have to go through a considerable amount of process to be implemented, both at the state level, federal level, with the EIS. Um, tell us about, you know, where are you, how close are you to having uh, a new set of rules implemented in, along these northeast states where this population is at risk? So, so the short answer is we're, we're, we're doing it as quickly as we can. Um, as you mentioned, the, the federal regulatory process has a bunch of, of steps and of, of requirements that we need to go, go through for, for transparency for, first and foremost, but also to make sure that the analyses and review and that go into the, the regulations right. are, are thorough and appropriate. So we're, we're doing that now. We, the, in the initial steps is having the scoping meetings for the environmental impact statement that we did. We went coast to, uh, port to port along the New England coast in August, getting feedback from industry and other members of the public on, on uh, their impressions on the measures that have been discussed, even though we, aren't, we haven't reached the point where we're at a proposed rule and proposing specific measures. What are your thoughts on what, we, what has been discussed, right. what the TRT has been up to? And more, most importantly, what analyses do you think 
should be included in the federal rulemaking and the environmental impact statement. Right. That's what scoping really is. It's, yeah. it's how is the public input on the front end on how the analyses should be done to get to the rules at, on the back end. Right. So the framework agreement that you reached in April, and as you say, it lacks the implementation detail. That's kind of the next natural step. Um, do you feel like this, from the agency standpoint, from NOAA Fisheries perspective, is the framework still a viable foundation upon which to, to act here in take reduction? I think so. So at this point, we, in the process, the, we on the federal side, we are working closely with all of our state partners and counterparts, and, and we've been in close communication ever since the April meeting as they've gone out on you know, state scoping meetings, for example, to get input from their industry at the state level. And as e- each of the states and the caucuses on the TRT are crafting their, their, their final measures, so okay. more detailed than that kind of framework agreement. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're expecting those soon from all of, our, all of the state caucuses on the team. So we're, we're in that point in between right now. Okay. We don't know what the states are going to put forward, but as soon as they give us what they will put forward, then we will roll all of those things into the federal rulemaking. Okay, so we're we're looking forward next week to talking to the uh, the Maine Lobstermen's Association about their perspective on this matter, and in in preparing to speak with you, did a little bit of research on how they were uh, perceiving the uh, process right now. Um, and here's what I, I I'm this is absolutely a, a bit speculative, but what I surmise from from looking at their uh, announced position on this is it seems to me that they're a little they are upset that there is such a focus on them particularly given the other factors that contribute to the loss of these whales uh, particularly in Canada or in other fishery type gear situations that this I, it almost sounds like to me that they feel picked on and they're not happy about that is <laughs> how close do you think I am and I, I don't really know but but what that's what it looks like to me they just don't feel like the focus is broad enough to be fair to them um, I, yeah, I, I understand that I understand it fully and I, if I were in their, in their shoes, I would feel the same way, and here's why. So imagine, imagine that we – imagine you're a, a lobster fisherman uh, in Maine, and for the past 20 years, you've been innovating and complying with regulations in the U.S. to prevent right whale entanglements, 20 years. Uh, a variety of things like sinking ground line, weak links, yep. uh, trawling up to, to cut down your vertical lines over – an extended period of time. Right. And this summer alone, we've seen eight dead right whales in Canadian waters. Uh, last year, there were no dead right whales in Canadian waters, but wow. the year before, there were 12. So in wow. a three-year span, the 20 dead whales in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. So imagine yourself a, a fisherman in Maine yeah. doing all you can for 20 years, thinking we're on the right track, only to see all these dead whales in another country, the same whales. So I, I mean, I of course I I sympathize with their frustrations. I if I were in their shoes, I would feel the exact same way. The trouble is, over the same period in U.S. fisheries alone, we have still exceeded our legal limits on entanglement mortalities for right whales. So while ship strike mortalities and Canadian mortalities make the situation worse and make things much more urgent, it still doesn't 
mean that we don't we aren't obligated to meet our requirements under the US law to reduce our own domestic entanglement mortalities clearly legal limits yeah that's clear so in, and if i'm a if i'm a lobster fisherman i'm saying why all this talk about lobster if if i just heard mike Azaro say that any any vertical line doesn't matter what it's connected to uh has the same entanglement risk why all the focus on lobster well as it turns out if you look at all of the vertical lines on the u.s east coast all of the 400 or 500,000 that i mentioned uh, across all those lines the entire u.s east coast um, outside of places like Chesapeake Bay, where right whales uh, don't go, and, and like blue crab fishing that occurs right. in there. All the vertical lines that are out in the U.S. East Coast, uh, lobster lines account for 97.5% of all the vertical lines. Wow, plus so, 90. So yes, 97.5%. So wow. yes, it's true that at any fishery can entangle a right whale. Yeah. There has been such a focus on right whales, and at the most recent tier on, on lobster, rather, and there has, and at the most recent TRT meeting, we did ask them to focus primarily on on lobster trap bot gear. Right. It's because, given the urgency of the situation, we needed to take a triage approach and tackle the biggest entanglement risk based on what the pre what the majority of the lines out there are. And right. at ninety seven point five percent of the lines being from the lobster fishery, that was what the TRT focused on. Got it. You know, as a as a comparison. Uh, you know, Gilnet, for example, I mentioned that Gilnet effort in New England has gone down greatly over the past decade. So it's to the point where, while 97.5% uh, belong to the lobster industry, 0.2% are Gilnet lines. Okay. So, so the scale of the risk is uh, drastically different, and that's what has led yeah. NOAA Fisheries and the TRT's action on, on this topic. Like, there's no doubt that that is sound. If that, if that, and I'll say if, if that is the uh, the numbers, if that is, if that is the line distribution, there isn't any question that this is the right place for the TRT to focus. But let me ask you this as a regulator, you've been at NOAA for a long time, and so much of this, uh, the effectiveness of what the agency does depends on this engaged, cooperative relationship with the with the users of marine resources that you guys spend so much time working to protect. Uh, you know, if is there is it a priority for the agency? I know you, you don't have authority here legally. You've got to get a handle on Canada, or you're not going to get these people on board. What is the administration doing, or what can the U.S. government do? to smack the Canadians upside the head, you know, and get these guys to take seriously the risks that they're producing so it is not so unfair to American lobstermen. Yeah, we agree. We we agree 100%. And in fact, just last month, uh, Chris Oliver, who's the um, assistant administrator for fisheries, the head NOAA fisheries official, was in Ottawa meeting with the Canadian government, uh, leadership of DFO, uh, demanding additional action. So we, we, we are doing that. We have had a, a bilateral working group with our Canadian counterparts active for the past three years. We, are, we have been pushing for uh, not only uh, partnerships on science so we can get a better understanding about whale distribution and habitat use, but also comparable measures. So many of the, we have been advising in, in, in talking about our 20-year uh, process here in the U.S. to our DFO counterparts for the past couple of years to help them get up to speed right. and implement comparable measures at the same time. We also have under the Marine Mammal Protection Act, a provision known as the import rule that was uh, finalized in 2017. It basically says after a five year grace period, so by January uh, 2022, 
any country who wants to import fish or fish products into the U.S. must certify that that fishery has the equivalent level of marine mammal protection oh. as the same domestic U.S. fishery. Great. Um, and, and if it doesn't, then those the fish and fish products from that country will not be imported. Wow. So, wow. so that, that applies to Canada as well. So fisheries like Canadian lobster and Canadian snow crab by, will, will need to be in compliance if they wish to import their products into the U.S. by that date, have wow. comparable measures to protect all marine mammals, including right whales. That's a big lever, uh, it would seem. Uh, well, I'm hoping, uh, uh, Mike, we have, thank you so much for this very thorough review of this complex issue. Uh, it's one of the things we uh, admire about NOAA and about the government agencies who, who struggle with these complex issues, multifactorial, economic and environmental. It's never an easy Competing balance. stakeholders. Competing man. It takes a lot of work. Um, and I'm hoping that the success of your process it continues here. And maybe the Maine Lobster uh, Men's Association can join forces with NOAA and get up to Ottawa and talk to Trudeau and see if they can get the attention of these people. Uh, there should be a cooperative working relationship here. Uh, and uh, I don't think, I'm just not a person who thinks that taking your ball and going home is the way to solve these complex problems. So I wish you well in the process you're engaged in. Any closing thoughts you'd like to offer? I know that's all. I just want to thank you both. And it, it was a pleasure to talk to you. And it was a pleasure to talk to your listeners, too. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Dr. Michael Asaro, the marine mammal and sea turtle branch chief at NOAA Fisheries uh, and the captain of the take reduction team for the northern right whale. Uh, Michael, thank you very much for the work that you're doing and best of luck. And thank you for being on the American Shoreline podcast. My pleasure. Take one,